Welcome to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. This show is about animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. And welcome everybody to another exciting edition of Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. Thank you, as always, all around the world for taking the time to listen to the show. Oh boy, oh boy, do we have an exciting show for you today. We have a guest from Down Under. Man, I'll tell you what, I love my Australian guests. I feel like they're some of our best episodes. I don't know if it's just the accent or the animal encounters they have down there. I just, they just produce some awesome guests. So on the show today, we have Jacob Emerson. He is a wildlife traveler and volunteer. And he is just, you know, I'll tell you what, you guys, the hour that we spent during this interview completely flew by. And he actually initially reached out to me on Instagram and he wanted to talk about his work with the Gibbon Conservation Society in Malaysia. Gibbons, of course, are those critically endangered apes. They're kind of like the smaller apes, lesser known apes found in the jungles, and they're just declining due to habitat destruction, poaching, and, you know, being caught for the illegal pet trade. And he reached out and he said, hey, I would love to talk to you about my work with the Gibbon Conservation Society. And I said, oh, this is great. Let's talk about Gibbons. So we get on the call and you'll know that we just, you know, start talking about his upbringing in Australia, you know, what it was like growing up in Australia, dealing with, you know, having crocodiles and sharks and venomous snakes in your backyard. We talk about his work working at SeaWorld in Australia and working with fur seals, rescued marine life, and then we talk about his world adventures. And I'll tell you what, I just... I felt like I was just living through his stories. And Jacob is a fantastic storyteller. There's a story he talks about when he goes to see Sumatran orangutans. And I'll tell you what, I, I, and I'll say this in the interview, my wife and I, we just watched Planet of the Apes. So I know that has nothing to do, like nothing at all to do with like science or, you know, wild apes, but it made me think of orangutans. And I was like, man, I would love to see them in the wild. Well, it turns out Jacob has a few times. And the story he tells about encountering a large male orang in the trees, just swinging, kind of gliding above him. It's just phenomenal, mesmerizing. And for anyone who's ever wanted to see these great apes, this is a must-listen episode. Also, he talks about seeing Komodo dragons. Okay, I mean, like, these, all these animal encounters are high up on my bucket list. Komodo dragons. I mean, just, he talks about being able to stay on the island where tourists usually aren't allowed to stay. He stays with a ranger, and he goes deep inside the island and sees one of the largest, if not the largest, Komodo dragon he ever has in his life. He then, of course, near the end of the episode, we finally get to him talking about the Gibbon Conservation Society and the work that this gal named Bam is doing to help save these gibbons, to rehabilitate gibbons who were captured, you know, for pets illegally, and they're trying to basically re-release these gibbons back into the wild. There's just so much amazing content, so much good work highlighted during this episode. I promise you are going to love it. Before we get started, please make sure, as always, if you haven't already, to subscribe to the show. Leave a rating. I love the reviews. I mean, just in the reviews, please let other listeners know which episodes you like the most. It seriously helps the show. It helps the show get out there. We are currently in the top 100, you know, nature podcasts in the world, which is 
amazing. It's fantastic. And the numbers keep on climbing. And that is all because of you and just sharing the episode with family and friends. Also, if you want more behind the scenes content, make sure to follow me personally at Corbin Maxi on my Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and Twitter. And also, please, please, please follow our podcast guest, Jacob. I am going to include the link to his Instagram handle and his Facebook and YouTube in the show notes. He is also an amazing photographer and videographer. I could just go on and on. So he has some great, great feel-good content. All right. With that said, please welcome to the show, wildlife traveler and volunteer from the Given Conservation Society, Jacob Emerson. I am so excited. We're joined with a guest from Down Under. I love my Australian guests on the show today. We have Jacob Emerson. How are you doing, man? Yeah, really good, mate. How are you going? Dude, so good. Thank you. By the way, thank, awesome. <laughs> thank you so much for, for reaching out and taking the time. I know sometimes it's difficult because we live on opposite sides of the world. Yeah, no problem, man. I, I've been actually watching um, what you've been doing and listening to your podcast for a while and thought this is a, a really good time and opportunity to kind of reach out and, and talk a bit of wildlife and, and other things too. So yeah, thanks heaps for having me. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat to me as well. Yeah, and you reached out and you said, and by the way, you have such a great IG page. Can you give us your IG handle right now? Because I love looking through it today. Thanks, man. Um, it's JJ Emerson underscore wildlife. Yep, and you've done some amazing wildlife things around the globe. And you initially reached out to me to talk about the Given Conservation Society and your work in Malaysia. But then you forgot to mention in your email, like all of your experience, like going to Komodo National Park and then like, <laughs> you know, Kruger National Park. And I was like, oh my God, this is, yeah, I'm so excited to talk to you. I'm super keen to talk about the Gibbon Conservation Society because that's kind of my passion project at the moment. I was over in Malaysia for several months last year and then I'm continuing to help them as best as I can from here. But yeah, I, I have been pretty lucky and fortunate to do a lot of uh, traveling in regards to wildlife and last year particularly been to some incredible places so i guess that all led up to the point of working with the with the gibbons and the gibbon conservation society yeah definitely in some wild places that's for sure <laughs> dude absolutely and where did the, i mean by the way how are you doing right now during this pandemic yeah not too bad um, australia is managing things really quite well so we're slowly easing up restrictions you know we're able to get outdoors a little bit more and you know there's talk of things continuing to ease which is really really good Oh, there's still, you know, uh, a lot of people str struggling with work and the economy and all that sort of thing. But hopefully soon, you know, certain places are going to open up. There's even talk of maybe like the zoos and stuff opening up soon again. I'm sure there'll be like restrictions on the amount of people mm -hmm. uh, and stuff like that. But that would be really, really good because, you know, um, of course, last uh, end of last year, we had the fires and then that went straight into this. You know, there's there's some zoos that um, have really been struggling. Uh, a lot of people have been struggling, but, you know, yeah. I guess I'm aware of what's going on with the zoos. Um, being, you know, kind of part of the industry and everything. So it'll be hopefully we can start easing back into things. And um, yeah, you know, it can be a bit easier for a lot of people. Yeah, it's been a nightmare for Australia. The wildfires and then this whole coronavirus, I can't even imagine right now. Yeah, yeah, it has been uh, pretty crazy. But, you know, uh, the Australian community, everyone's banding together and uh, getting through it as best as they can. And, and you, you know, I'm sure like everybody is. So mm. hopefully there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, you know, some things won't, like international travel, for instance, that's not going to happen for quite some time, I would expect. But, you know, there is already talks of Australia and New Zealand hopefully opening up borders again soon. You know, we might be able to travel into state again soon because um, they've actually shut borders to most of the states within Australia. 
and things slowly kind of opening up and things getting back to a certain degree of normality. Nice, nice. Yeah, we're doing the same too. Okay, I just wanted to see how you're doing. So let's just go back. Take me back when you were a young bloke. Is that that's Australian? Yeah, when you were a young <laughs> bloke, mate. <laughs> yeah. Wait. Just when I was a little tacker. When you were a little, bloke. yeah. When you were a little tacker. Wait, can I ask you a question? Because I think, dude, your accent's so cool. I just love talking to Australian friends. Do I have like a really cool accent to you, or is this is, is my accent so American to you? It, it is, man. I will admit it is, it is very American. Like I actually don't have a particularly – well, I don't think I do have a particularly strong Australian accent. Oh, I do. Um, it, compared to a lot of other people oh, I know. Yeah, yeah it, you, you, you're, you're very American. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Okay. So when you were a young little tacker – or yeah, tacker. I said that right. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so <laughs> have you always – I mean tell me where you grew up in Australia and tell me how, you know, where your fascination with wildlife started. Cool. Well, uh, I grew up um, – I'm back here at the moment, but I grew up on a place called the Central Coast, which is a little bit north of Sydney, about an hour north of Sydney. Okay. And, uh, yeah, I guess as far as my love for wildlife, it, it was – I don't remember there being like a particular moment it happened. It just kind of as, – as soon as I could go to the zoo or read a book or anything, that's what I wanted to look at. You know, I was that kid that always had his dinosaur books out and his dinosaur toys and his animal toys and stuff and – as soon as, you know, mum and, and dad started taking me to the zoo, you know, I was just, they couldn't keep track of me because I just want to run off and see every animal as, as quickly as I possibly could. And mum tells me this story. We're at the Western Plains Zoo, which is, you know, a few hours west from here. It's actually joined with the Sydney Taronga Zoo and standing in front of the rhino exhibit. And I would have been like four years old. And the other people that were looking at these rhinos, I was just chewing their ear off, telling them everything I knew, you know, oh, they've got horns just like a triceratops. And this guy's like, ma'am, to my mom, you know, could, could you like shut your kid up a little bit? <laughs> we want to, we want to um, just watch these animals, but I just wanted to like share it and, and tell everyone everything I knew about them. I was into the books and watching all the documentaries from a young age as well. And then I actually started volunteering with animals when I was just 16 at a little wildlife park on the central coast. And just from there, it just carried on. A few years later, I got uh, a job and then another job and kind of worked through a couple of different zoological facilities. Yeah, and it was just kind of up and over from there. And, and once I started traveling as well, you know, I've been traveling on and off for, you know, five or six years, trying to do a couple of trips each year. And every single trip involves wildlife in, in some sense. Yeah. Um, whether it's, you know, uh, I've been to so many places, I'm sure we'll discuss it soon, but, you know, photography, videography, I'm really into that at the moment. And just kind of sharing the message, which I was able to do in my, uh, with my photography and, and traveling, kind of bringing that back to people that may not be able to visit those places. But then also working with people within the zoos and obviously the awareness and education aspect doing that as well. So started young and just kind of just kept the passion just kept, kept building to kind of where it is today. Do you see it as competitive, the zoological field in Australia? Is it more competitive since there are fewer institutions? Um, it, it is competitive. Um, I've got a couple of friends in, in, you know, in the States and stuff, and I think it's more competitive for you guys, despite there being more facilities to kind of get into some of the, you know, the, the bigger institutions, I guess it's, it is competitive, but you get, you get out of it what you put in, Mm -hmm. you know, when I was 16, I was a volunteer and I would give every, every weekend, you know, after school, go and, and volunteer um, put the time in and then kind of made an impact, you know, and I think that's the most important place to start. You know, I've got a, a certificate three in captive animals, what they call it, which is like a, a, a certificate in zookeeping and a biology degree as well. But I don't think those are as important as volunteering and getting your foot in the door 
proving that you are willing to work hard, that you're passionate about what you're doing, and that can really, really stand out, I suppose. So a lot of people that have been successful in the zoo industry in Australia, I think, started in the exact same way, volunteered, got a job out of it, and, you know, kind of just proved, you know, they have what it, have what it takes, you know. So, yeah, it, it is fairly c- competitive, but, again, if you're passionate and you really want to do it, you'll, you'll get a job eventually. Yeah, and which species were you working with when you're 16 leading into your first keeping position? Yeah, so I worked at a place called the Australia Walkabout Wildlife Park, which is a really cool uh, really cool place. On the Central Coast, we have two wildlife parks or, or, or zoos, I guess you could call them, which is Walkabout Park and the Australian Reptile Park. Okay. And they actually are situated very, very close to each other. Uh, but Walkabout Park was quite unique. The actual uh, zoo part, so to speak, with enclosures was quite a small area, but it was actually had an 80-acre uh, it was an 80-acre plot of land with a fox-proof fence around it. Oh. So all the wallabies and the emus and, and the like were actually free-ranging. And you could go out for a bushwalk out there and see, like, you know, wild skinks and, um, you know, goannas, snakes. So we often would have to relocate the wild snakes out of the, the main zoo area because, you know, we had small little mammals and, and paddy melons and bilbies and stuff like that. And if these pythons came in, we kind of have to go take them a bit further away because, you know, it was, it was a really open and, and wild space. But it was uh, all native Australian animals, so, you know, koalas, kangaroos, uh, Tassie devils, a bunch of reptiles and snakes and stuff like that. Um, quolls were, were really cool to work with. And, yeah, that's how I kind of got my start um, working there as a volunteer just kind of annoyed the keepers and rangers, followed them around, asked them a million questions, you know, picked their brain, got my knowledge up, and then they gave me a shot, said, you know, do you want to work? Absolutely. It was still only a couple of days a week, but, you know, that place really gave me the start to kind of where I'm where I am today and what I'm doing today. That's great. And I have to ask, because I've had on some of my buddies, you keeper Dan and Brandon from the Australian Reptile Park. Are you guys like yep. fierce rivals? Are they gonna kill me when they <laughs> when they hear this nah, podcast? Nah, nah, nah. <laughs> I actually, it's funny, like, I've chatted to both those guys oh, mainly just via social media, and we are all on the Central Coast, but we've oh. never actually, like, met up before. Oh, I only moved back to the Central Coast quite recently, but, you know, we chat and, and you know, see an epic photo, we'll talk about it and stuff sometimes, um, particularly Brandon. Um, and, yeah, no, nah, not rivals at all. You know, we've all got the same goal in the end, which is, you know, share wildlife with people and, and all that sort of thing. I did actually do a very, very short stint volunteering at the Reptile Park before okay. both those guys were there when I was actually kind of in between jobs. I was just there for a couple of months, which is an amazing experience. But yeah, both the parks, um, Reptile Park is probably bigger and more well-known, but completely different. You know, you can literally just go out into the bush at Walkabout Park. And, you know, there's not just the animals, there's Aboriginal sacred sites, which are thousands of years old. And you just can really get more immersed in nature there, I suppose. They're, they're quite different, but then they obviously both have that. You're able to see the animals and, and, mm-hmm. and learn something there. But yeah, really, both really cool facilities. Mm-hmm. I have a question. Growing up, because Steve Irwin was just huge, I mean, for me growing up, was that the same for you growing up in Australia? Because he was literally in your backyard? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've got, had like a, bookshelf and all of them were just steve Irwin dvds i think i had you know 90 percent of them there were some we couldn't even get in australia and you know i'd be on ebay searching for them and stuff had all of them so yeah um he was for a lot of people growing up you know i guess in our you know generation he was massive and um definitely ignited that spark Mm -hmm. for a lot of people you know Mm -hmm. um that love wildlife and have committed their life now to to wildlife and animals Mm -hmm. and how far away are you because you said you're a couple hours north of sydney or an hour north of sydney yeah. So how far away so, would that? I, I'm just need to figure out where you are from the Australian <laughs> Zoo because they're in Brisbane, right? 
Uh, they're a bit further north from Brisbane on the sunny coast. Oh, yeah. Right so there. okay, I see it. Yeah, yeah. Perfect. North. I was actually working on uh, in the Gold Coast at SeaWorld in the Gold Coast for a couple of years, and that was about an hour south of, or maybe nearly two hours south of Australia Zoo. I used to do that drive actually from the Central Coast to Gold Coast quite regularly, which is about ten hours. So to drive maybe be wow. about yeah, twelve hours, maybe. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Okay. And then so on your okay, so you said you worked at SeaWorld for a few years. Yeah. Now what was that like? Uh it was pretty cool. So um I after I finished uni, I applied for a couple of different jobs in different zoos. And that was the one, you know, I got an opportunity, got an interview and started working there in the animal care department. So the animal care department looked after uh, mainly seals and sea lions. A lot of them were actually uh, rescued and unreleasable animals. Uh, we also worked with the little penguins or the fairy penguins. Uh, <laughs> we, we, we're not really meant to call them fairy penguins anymore. They're, they're technically called little penguins. Oh, really? People uh, don't call them fairies anymore? Yeah, I don't know. I, I've never looked that much into it, but we get told, yeah, I call them the little penguins, which is, which is true. They are the smallest species of penguin in the world. So they were my absolute favorite to work with. I could just sit there and watch them for hours. Uh, and then also other seabirds. So we had a lot of pelicans, um, some, you know, that were missing wings and were injured uh, that couldn't be released as well. And we were quite involved with any animals that came in that needed rescue and rehabilitation. Seals, we had a dugong come in once. What? Which was, yeah. No. Yeah. SeaWorld is, is quite involved in the, the wild research with dugongs. But, um, can, can you, I'm sorry ago, to interrupt, Jacob, but can you explain yeah. to the audience, can you tell them what a dugong is or dugong? Because a, a lot of people are probably like, what in the world? Yeah. So a dugong. So in the States, you guys have the manatees. They're from the same family. I, Syri- Syrians, I think. They're from yes. the same family. Yes. Collectively sea, sea cows or yep. whatever they call them. Yep. Um, but the, the dugongs are found mainly in tropical environments. They're not just in Australia. You know, you can find them throughout the Pacific and, and um, you know, in quite, quite a few locations. And different to the manatees, dugongs only eat the seagrass, which is on the, the bottom. Mm-hmm. You know, they won't actually – I've seen videos of manatees, you know, crawling up half on land eating, like, grass and stuff at the edge of, you know, the rivers and stuff like that. Dugongs will only eat seagrass, and they are only found in um, marine environments, so, you know, salt water. Mm-hmm. But they're, you know, big animals, a couple of hundred kilos. They've got this beautiful big tail. It's different to a manatee's, and a manatee's tail is round. The dugongs, they, they're, you know, nicknames like the mermaid, mermaids, I think. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they've got a like huge kind of whale-shaped tail, but absolutely massive. And we had an animal that was found very far south, actually, on the New South Wales south coast, and way too cold for dugongs down there. And we got don't really know what triggered him to go down there, but... Uh-huh. People were looking in on him for quite a while and, and noticed that he was losing body condition. He did have a few skin conditions as well just because it was too cold for him down there. So uh, we actually, uh, working with another facility, were able to bring him back up to the Gold Coast because the Gold Coast is the southern end of the Dugong's range. Okay. Uh, there are actually a couple quite close to you know where SeaWorld is located and took him up there, kind of rehabilitated him, fattened him up. There were people going out every day to cut, you know, kilos and kilos of seagrass for him, which we we put in there. And once that happened, yeah, he got a, a little tag and he got released back out into Moreton Bay, you know, a couple of hours north of SeaWorld. And the cool thing is these guys do um, quite regular research projects with the dugongs. And, you know, I don't think they've seen him again yet, but, you know, if, we, if they do and they see that tag, you know, that would be 
amazing, you know, that that guy got released back out there and, and you know, he's still thriving in Moreton Bay. But they are quite elusive animals. You know, there's definitely a lot more to learn about them. They're very skittish as well. Um, but, yeah, really, really cool. So dugongs, dolphins, we, we have uh, rehabilitated and released a couple of those. I say we. I don't work there anymore, but yeah. um, <laughs> I did. Yeah. I did. yeah, and, and seabirds and stuff as well. So obviously the rescue and rehabilitation game can be quite often if by the time an animal comes into care, often it is too sick. Obviously not all of them make it, but, you know, it makes those success stories so much so much more rewarding and, and fantastic uh, stories to share. You know, one year we had a number of New Zealand or long-nosed fur seal pups come in, oh. like tiny little pups. And, and again, they are meant to be on the south coast of Australia mm-hmm. or in New Zealand. And the currents, whatever's washed them up, you know, they're only about a year old. And yeah, we kind of fattened them up. And once we thought they were ready, released them back down to where they were found. And uh, yeah, you know, do, doing some really good work. And the animals that were actually in the animal care department, uh, most of them, as far as the seals go, were animals, seals that had been rescued and were unreleasable. So a lot of them, you know, had cookie cutter shark bites or um, had to have eye surgeries and stuff like that because they had damage to their, to their eyes and, and things like that. So that's why those guys were were there yeah. and that's the main animals that i looked in on i i'm happy you brought that up because here in the states uh, sea world there i mean uh, there's a lot of people for sea world and because of blackfish you know the documentary there's a lot of people against sea world and that just brought so much negative that i think that documentary was released in 2013 but i'm happy you brought that up because sea world they do a lot of rescue work i mean here in the states and i think aren't they are they're not the same organization are they no, no, no they're different, not. different organization. Same name, different organization. Same name. Yeah. How did they get away with that? That's crazy. I mean, they both. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I think Sea World in the states, it's like there's no space between the sea and the world, and then the sea world here is like two separate words. Oh. I think. Back to Blackfish, you know, I've watched that several times, and it's an interesting take. You know, I think in the working in zoos, no matter whether you're you know a world class zoo or an up and coming zoo. The interesting thing I find with this pressure put on by things like blackfish and the activists and stuff like that isn't necessarily that you know you need to release all the animals or that shut zoos down or anything like that. But I think it's um it still strives us to be better. Like I remember going to zoos when I was a kid not that long ago, twenty years ago, and seeing that compared to now, how much they have improved just with our knowledge. But also, you know, if someone brings up a point and an activist doesn't believe it's there, you know, can have that discussion and go, you know, well, maybe we could be doing this better. And even in my time at SeaWorld, I saw that, you know, as far as the presentations and shows and stuff went, even during my time there, we shifted them to a much more educational-based thing and kind of phased out certain things. And I think that's a really good thing. Complex topic, but um, yeah, the, the, the blackfish side of things is, you know, people that support um, housing animals, I guess, in captivity and seeing the benefit that that can do, it doesn't mean we can't be doing things better. So that's how I kind of try to look at it, rather than getting all hung up on activists and stuff like that. That's my personal. Do you see, because we have a lot of like animal activists here in the States. Do you think it's, do you think we have more, you know, activists here in the States? Is it more of a, of a problem for SeaWorld here in the States? Or do you see the same problems are faced in Australia as well when you worked at SeaWorld? Did you have that same type of backlash? Um, yeah, we would have a couple um, of, you know, protesting groups come in every now and then, mm-hmm. but SeaWorld here doesn't house orcas, oh, um, okay. which I think is a big thing, you know, we've got bottlenose dolphins. We. <laughs> I don't work there. It was such a big part of my life, you know, yeah. but, you know, they, they house bottlenose dolphins, and I think the orcas, you know, with blackfish, you know, the big 
you know, the big trump card that they were pushing there and stuff. And, you know, there are always going to be people that don't support animals in in human care. And I suppose some animals are better suited to human care than others. It's something that's going to definitely evolve over the next little while. And so long as we are providing the best care possible, no matter, you know, where you work in the zoo- in the zoological field, then, you know, that's that's all you can do and keep learning and keep trying to do the best that you can. So, mm-hmm. Okay. Can I ask you, this question is going to kind of go back to your childhood, but I've never asked any of my Australian guests this, and I'm so, I'm so disappointed. I want to ask you about your childhood <laughs> growing up. Was it like, was it terrifying? Like, because Australia is known for having the deadliest animals on land and in water. I mean, in the entire world, I mean, you guys are known for having the most venomous snakes. You guys have the sharks, you have the giant, you know, saltwater crocodiles. I mean, what was that like? Um, I guess down here on the central coast, you know, we do have a couple of venomous snake species, like eastern brown snakes, red belly, black, red belly black snakes, death adders. But you just get taught about them really from quite a young age, mm. I suppose. You know, there are, unfortunately, a couple of people out there still that, you know, the only good snakes are dead snakes, what they say. But, you know, if you're told, you know, when you're walking through through the bush, if you're going for a bushwalk, just be alert um you know and snakes don't want anything to do with you you know they'd much rather much rather slither away and they only really these bites often happen when someone interacts with the snake tries to pick it up tries to move it tries to hurt it and stuff like that so it was just kind of just a part of it a part of growing up here i suppose mm-hmm. but yeah it definitely didn't walk around all fearful or anything like that it's still you know like i, I would probably be able to count on one hand the amount of snakes why, you know, venomous snakes I've seen while bushwalking. You know, I'm not necessarily out there looking for them, but you don't come across them really that often, or in, in my experience, anyway. Maybe it's like us with bears, because we have bears here, and sometimes people are like, yeah. you know what I mean? That you, you know, like, oh my gosh, or mountain lions and stuff. But I mean, very rarely do you encounter those animals. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a bit the same like that. And then, you know, crocs and, and oh, yeah. sharks and stuff like that, you know, but you have to be a bloody idiot to get done by a croc because you know there's signs everywhere up there you know don't go swimming with crocs da, da, da. you know where they are sharks is an interesting one this morning actually so in australia we've got i don't know if you have them in the states a shark uh shark net control program okay so they have shark nets off the beach which is designed oh, yeah. To, okay yeah sorry yeah yeah so um we have that in australia as well and in queensland particularly up on the gold coast this morning we had a humpback whale caught in that net Oh, and that will happen several times a year when they migrate up the east coast. And I've got a, a friend who actually recently did a documentary about the shark nets and the impact. And the amount of sharks they catch is negligible, especially you know sharks that are deemed to be potentially dangerous. So tiger sharks, great whites, nothing. You know, it's stingrays, whales, dolphins, turtles, and a lot of them you know get entangled in these nets and don't survive. You know, um, so this is kind of going on a bit of a tangent. But just because I saw that thing this morning, this whale caught in that net. And those nets are designed to protect swimmers from sharks, but they're really, it, it doesn't really work like that. You know, they are actually, there's a lot of bycatch and other animals getting caught up in those nets, which is a real shame. And I don't think that outweighs the risk of a shark attack, which happens, you know, the chance is so, so slim. So yeah, there, there's definitely dangerous animals out there. There's dangerous animals everywhere, but as long as you're sensible, you know, as far as sharks go, don't go surfing dawn or dusk in areas where you know big predatory sharks are around don't go swimming in crocodile infested waters stuff like that you know you are pretty safe yeah how prevalent are these shark nets in australia um i I don't know the exact numbers but um in queensland they are 
up kind of up and down the coast. But the thing is, they're only a certain length and certain um, depth beneath the water. Like, I think oh. they only get six meters or something beneath the water. The sharks can swim underneath, the sharks can swim around. Oh, well, what? So, you know, they may catch some animals, but it's completely, you know, they're just as likely to swim around. And, you know, there has been cases as well. A stingray might get caught in a net, and then they see there's a huge shark bite out of this stingray you know it's kind of almost baiting them to come in closer because these other animals are trapped and thrashing around and then you can see the shark bite on this animal but no you know <laughs> where's the shark you know yeah so anything you know there's debates that it could even be having the opposite effect and there are you know new methods coming out that that could be used much more efficiently i'm not an expert on, on, on the topic i've got some friends that definitely are but yeah, it's kind of weighing the risk. You know, we live in such a beautiful place here in Australia. Everyone wants to go swimming and stuff. And, you know, there is that minute chance of shark attack. But is it worth killing hundreds of other animals to make us feel safe? I don't think so. No, no, not at all. I mean, yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, we kind of went off. But I, I find that yeah, interesting. So that was a, that was, no, that, that was a massive change. No, I that was good. That I didn't even yeah. realize that. It's an interesting perspective to look at the sh- at the shark nets. I never even realized thinking about how they could even just be actually drawing more predators to those nets with flat, you know, thrashing prey animals. And I mean, that totally makes sense. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So, Jacob, okay. So you're at SeaWorld. And then where does your wildlife journey take you from SeaWorld? Cool. So I actually uh, did resign from SeaWorld about a year ago, which is a pretty tough decision. But the reason for that was to travel. So I spent more or less the last 12 months overseas traveling and, you know, been to some incredible places. Um, You mentioned before Komodo, Sumatra. I started off in Africa, covered, you know, several countries over in Africa. And, and, you know, like for my own, you know, photography and stuff like that, it's just kind of like a hobby. Maybe I'd like to make it something a little bit bigger down the line. But, you know, and, and, to be able to see so many animals that may not be here in 10 or 20 years time. And, you know, I kind of thought this is the time to do it. You know, it's the right time in my life to go, go do this sort of thing. And yeah, I had some incredible experiences, you know, um, seeing uh, Sumatra and orangutans in Sumatra, orangutan, orangutan. I know. I <laughs> that's okay. I say orangutans all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, that's incredible because those guys yeah. are so, me, so rare now. And, 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 you know, Komodos and all these animals are so rare. And this was my chance to go see them J- traveling. Jacob, we have to go back to the orangutans. I yes. Okay. So my wife and I, we just finished the Planet of the Apes. Have you seen those movies? Yeah. Oh yeah. my God. And then when I saw your IG this morning, I'm like, oh, I have to talk to you about the orangutan. So what was that like in Sumatra? I mean, they are so rare. I mean, what was that like going to see them in the wild? It's incredible. You know, they, they are a critically endangered species, but there are certain places where they are still relatively easy to see. Okay. The the base of where I've actually been twice. I went oh. a few years ago. I loved it so much that I decided to go back while I was traveling this time. So in the uh, Gunung Lesur National Park uh, in North Sumatra, there's a little village called Bukit Luwong, and that place is kind of a hub for going on jungle treks and and seeing the wildlife. Some people go more so just to do massive long jungle treks. You know, they might be out there for a week just going into the jungle and then back out again, which is what I kind of more so did this time. We're out there for five days. But there's also some spots that you can actually see orangutans quite close because there used to be a rehabilitation center there. So although some of them are definitely wild animals, some of them actually were rehabilitated and released. That rehabilitation center is since not there anymore. But it does mean that some, you know, aren't particularly scared of people and you actually can get 
reasonably close. The first, one of the first ones we saw when I was there a couple of years ago was a huge um, alpha male with the massive platelet oh, flanges. Oh, just like, like plan- and stuff. oh, yes, yes. And that was just awesome, you know, um, to be able to see him up close and uh, you, you don't realize how, how big they are. And, you know, he's just he, he's just swim- the best way to describe it, he was just swimming through the vines, just kind of like grabbing and just kind of like like not swinging but like pulling himself around and stuff and just the strength in his arms and it was awesome and he was only you know a couple of meters above uh the forest floor and kept a safe distance obviously to respect him um and got some really cool photos of that but that's actually something that i'm quite passionate about is if you are viewing wildlife overseas animals like orangutans is to do it respectfully you know you do see some cases i did see a couple of animals there where you know you'd have 50 people around trying to see an orangutan and the, the responsible tour guides would go, okay, we're not going to add to this amount of people. Let's go find, go to another spot, you know, because some of the orangutans are okay with kind of people around, but, you know, you, you never want to stress the animal. And that's something that um, when I started my travels, I was particularly aware about. I wanted to see as many amazing animals as possible, but do it in the most sustainable way that doesn't put stress on the animal or its habitat or anything like that. So I'm really big about you know, being very aware when, when traveling of, of how it's going to impact that animal and its environment. I think that's really, really important because you do see some places where it's having a, you know, they call it ecotourism or animal tourism or wildlife tourism, and it's actually having a negative impact on those animals. Mm-hmm. Um, even in the, the national park I was in, the, a lot of the guides think they should decrease the amount of people tourists allowed to go in each year just to give the, the area a bit of a chance to regenerate and so having people walking on the paths every single day gives a bit of a chance to regenerate yeah it's but you know it's it's such an incredible place i do encourage people to go there but i guess when you're booking your tour or, or anything like that which may not be for a couple of years now with everything going on with the pandemic but yep. if you're booking your tour be aware contact the people directly and just kind of get a, a i guess a bit of a feel of whether you think they're doing right by the animals or they're just doing it for the business side of things i suppose yeah i'm happy you brought that up i i have to go back to that encounter so when you see this big orange beauty i'm just imagining him kind of you know yeah you know like through oh, the trees i've i've had people on this podcast talk about seeing gorillas and seeing chimps for the chimpanzees one of my buddies said it was terrifying were you scared at all or was it just nah our guide was great we had a definite distance where we would not go past a certain point okay and you know Every time he turned around and just checked where we were, we would take like a few steps back and we would kind of assess that, okay, maybe, you know, maybe he's just checking us out, but we don't want to push this guy to the point that he's uncomfortable. So, you know, we were very aware of that. But just when he made eye contact, there's something about primates and like they're the only great ape that I've seen in the wild. Uh And just when they make that eye contact, you're just like, damn, like there's just so much going on in there. It's, it's really spiritual. Like it's, it's. Yeah, and, you know, just to be able to spend a little bit of time with him and eventually he was a bit more comfortable and he just sit there and we could t- take, move around, take some cool shots and stuff like that. I wasn't scared because I trusted the guides and I guess, you know, knowing the parameters and limits that you have to have with wildlife, if we got to a certain point, yeah, he probably would have reacted, but we knew we were at a safe distance. There was no reason for him to react adversely towards us. So it made for a really, really incredible encounter. Do they have a pungent or uh, odor? I couldn't smell any. I can't remember back that far, but I, I, not that I recall. But when you're in the in the jungle, it's there's so there's you know the decaying leaf matter. There's oh. you know there's there's so many other smells, I suppose. So I uh, didn't 
couldn't get a particularly good whiff of him, but um, yeah, not that I recall. <laughs> okay. And how, I mean, how elusive are they? So you said the orangs are, you know, used to this area because it used to be like a, like a rescue, you know, place. And then, so they're used to people. So is it pretty easy to see them? I, I just, I guess my, my question is if I spend all the money and I want to go to Sumatra, do you think it's, I'm pretty much guaranteed to see orangutans? Um, I think you've got a pretty high chance. Okay. So it, it comes down to the time of year as well. You know, um, the the orangs, you know, during the fruiting season, you know, the oh. fruits are so plentiful that they can spread out and go wherever they want. Whereas, you know, there are um, a couple more fruiting trees close to the village and stuff like that. And they come in there and go back into the, into the jungle. But yeah, it is a pretty good chance. But the, the good thing is, you know, you're on the path, you see an orangutan. Once he's had enough or wants to do what he wants to do, he goes into the thick jungle where you just can't follow. Oh. You know, the end of the day it's up to them and you know they can kind of make that decision when they you know don't want to be observed anymore i suppose but yeah pretty good chances it's probably the, the best place in the world to see orangs up close i'd say i've seen them in borneo as well which was cool but it didn't really compare the area i was in just didn't compare to seeing them in sumatra oh man that's oh that's on my bucket list okay so <laughs> so what comes next on your wildlife traveling the world um well, I actually started in, in Africa, so did a 30-day trip around uh, Namibia, Botswana, Zimbabwe, South Africa, which was incredible. Wow. Saw lots of amazing wildlife there. Ticked, um, one of the main animals I wanted to see on that trip was black rhino. Oh, yes. And I asked the guide when we got to Atosha in Namibia, I was like, you know, what are the odds of seeing black rhino? He's like, oh, yeah, pretty good, but, you know, you never know. You know, sometimes we see them, sometimes we don't. That night, there were five individual black rhino around the watering hole. What? <laughs> two, mothers, two mothers in cars and no. another individual. Yeah. And what? I was like, ah, incredible. Oh, and they really only come at night as well. So, you know, I there was one morning, I was up at like four in the morning. It was like so cold. You don't think of like the Africa being cold. Uh-huh. It was freezing. I'm just sitting there on my own at like four in the morning watching these rhinos around the watering hole. That was one of the best wildlife experiences I've ever had. And then, yeah, you know, we saw them, you know, we saw a lot of the other token, you know, African species, you know, elephants, giraffes and, and all that as well. But that was cool. The black rhinos were definitely a highlight there. Leopard? Uh, you see leopard? Oh, from the furthest distance possible. Like oh, nothing. They're so yeah, elusive. Really, really, really I've never seen see one. Cheetah? Okay. We did see a cheetah, yep, yep in uh, Kruger. That was pretty cool and, and quite surprising. Um, our guide spotted him from like a kilometer away and we we're all like, where is he? And then when he came close and just kind of walked actually in between the, the cars and just kind of look around for a little bit and then walked off again. So that was really, really cool. Did you go to the Okavango in Botswana? Yep, yep. Went to Delta, yep. And I camped out there one night actually, which was really cool. You know, we went out in the Makoros, the dugout canoes. And, you know, you're just going along. Next thing you just hear this, and a hippo comes up, you know. Probably about 50 meters away. But, you know, when you hear that noise, it sounds a lot closer. And, you know, one of the best things about that was we camped in, in the Delta and I just get up pretty early, brushing my teeth in the morning, look around and there's an elephant just like a hundred meters away eating his breakfast from like hundred meters from our campsite. I'm just like brushing my teeth watching this elephant. I'm like, is this like real life? Such a magical place. Wow. I mean, I just, I have to ask you, this is going to be a personal question, but there are people listening who are wondering how were you able to afford all of this? I mean, you don't have to go deep into your finances, but I mean, just can yeah, you give us yeah, like, yeah. how did you do this? Just honestly, I knew it was something I wanted to do for a, quite a bit of time. And I just was very strategic with my saving, you know, okay. kind of stopped, stopped paying for all those extra luxuries. You know, I'd like to maybe go out for dinner with friends every, you know, couple of times a week or something like that, but it didn't do it. And just kind of strategically saved a bit of money. 
and was quite conscious, I suppose, of, you know, I'm spending my money on these wildlife things, but when I'm backpacking in the other areas, so when I was in Indonesia and Malaysia for parts of it, I'm staying in hostels that are like $5 a night, you know? Oh, okay. It's a place to sleep and a place to shower. It's definitely not five-star or anything like that. You get what you pay for, but as long as I've got a comfortable bed and it's safe and it's got good reviews, I'm going to stay there because then I can spend more money on seeing wildlife. Yeah, okay. So that was kind of my philosophy around it. I was kind of, there'd be weeks where I wasn't doing much wildlife stuff, where I'd be spending, you know, next to nothing, you know, eating local food, staying in hostels and, and you know, doing things really cheap. And then I'd be able to spend a little bit more on an encounter, seeing the orangs or this Africa tour and, and things like that. So, you know, traveling, being yeah, being strategic, traveling, did you ever feel unsafe at times going to Africa or going to Sumatra, Malaysia? Not really. In Africa, I was actually in a group uh, tour situation, oh, so you know, that, that was pretty good. But um, yeah, I backpacked through Malaysia and Indonesia quite extensively and never really felt unsafe. In regards to the animals, didn't feel unsafe. And in regards to people either, you know, such amazing, I've, I've met so many amazing people as well as seeing amazing animals during my travels. And the diciest situation that I came into was actually in the middle of Kuala Lumpur, which is the capital of Malaysia. And walking to my hotel one, hostel one night, and actually got jumped by a pack of like street dogs. Oh, oh! Just out of absolutely nowhere, like late at night, to see this growl, and I'm like, well, that doesn't sound good. And then like a bunch of street dogs kind of just jumped out. And I had to take my backpack off and kind of like circling around. I was like, oh, oh man! My God. But <laughs> you know, kind of once I kind of slowly walked away out of their area, they were fine. But wildlife, not really. You know, if if you're being silly and trying to get too close to get that perfect shot or just, you know, for your Instagram or whatever and you annoy wildlife, yeah, there's going to be that danger factor. But if you do it respectfully, and I'm lucky, you know, I've worked with animals for quite a long time. I may not have worked with Komodo dragons, for instance, but, you know, just general animal behavior, I suppose, you know, you just know not to push it. What, what benefit will that get you if you push the limit too far? Nothing. The animal's stressed and you put yourself in a potentially dangerous situation. So, just take it easy and, and, and yeah, never really felt in danger in any of the, with any wildlife encounters. Yeah. And I'm so happy you brought up the Komodos once again on my bucket list. What was that like seeing the largest land lizard in person? Really cool, man. That's, that was probably the highlight of my entire time traveling last year. I was in Komodo for four or five days and initially being budget conscious, I actually did like, an, again, just another group tour and it went to see to Rincha Island and Komodo Island. We got to see the dragons kind of around the visitor center and then, you know, did a bit of snorkeling and, and all this sort of stuff, you know, the, the typical tourist, touristy thing. And that was really, really cheap. And about halfway through that, I'm like, no, nah, I want to do this a bit more, have a bit more of a one-on-one -on -one encounter. So I'm contacting this guy and this guy and he puts me in contact with this guy and, da, 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 da. and eventually... I was able to find one of the rangers on the island who was happy to take me around and actually for me to stay on Rincha Island. Wow. So normally you, you can't stay you can't stay on Rincha or Komodo. There's kind of the main port town. You have to stay there and then you go on day trips. And if you stay out overnight amongst the islands, you stay in in the boat. You don't actually stay on the islands. But this guy was able to organize for me to stay just in one of the ranger lodges for one night, which meant, you know, that we were able to go uh, get up really early looking for dragons before it got too hot because they're more active, you know, earlier in the morning mm -hmm. and went out at night looking for snakes and stuff as well, you know. So it was a very different experience and it was just me and him. And I could just pick his brain. He told me so much about them, you know. We're able to go further out in, into the island because there are a lot of dragons that hang around the visitor's center. 
you know, so, some of the, um, the local people would throw them a few scraps and carcasses and stuff every now and then. So, you know, free food, of course, they're going to hang around. But we went, you know, right into the middle of Rincha Island, and that's where we found some dragons that were, like, not only enormous, but, you know, this is like, okay, so four days ago we saw this dragon take down a deer over here in this little watering hole where we're standing now. So we need to be, like, looking around, you know, because this is an ambush spot. I was like, okay. Still didn't feel worried because I trusted him, but, you know, just looking around and stuff, we found that dragon. He's sitting there with a massive belly full just out in the sun, and those were, like, the wild dragons, you know, like, they're all wild, but the ones over near the visitor center, you know, that's kind of for the tourists that come in, see them and go again. But we actually went out looking for different, you know, we saw some young dragons. We saw a female um, guarding her nest and just some really big male dragons as well. Like I've seen a few Komodos in, in zoos and, and stuff. Like I know like the guys at Reptile Park, they've got some dragons there. They had quite a big one at the Taronga Zoo for a while. I saw this wild dragon on Komodo Island and enormous, like, like his head was like like this. I, I did not even know they got that big. You know, people can't see how big I'm yeah, making this yeah, headset. Yeah. Hands, but he was absolutely massive, absolutely massive. Like I reckon he would have weighed more than me, easy. Uh huh. Like how big? And like are you like? I mean, f- I mean, watermelon like, size, like a head the size of a I guess, watermelon. I guess, but like, I guess, but like flatter. Maybe not. Maybe not quite as big as one, but but close. He was big. Wow. I'll have to I'll have to send you the photo of this particular animal, but he was just so stocky. It was, it was cool. Didn't see another one quite that big, but um, that one was just an absolute monster. And, yeah, they, they – they, and they're so different to any other lizards that I've seen. Yeah, we've got heaps of goannas in Australia and stuff, but they've just got some, a confidence about them, just the oh. way they walk, swagger, and uh, – I don't know. I could talk about this for, for, for ages. Like, uh, but, um, yeah, definitely – definitely the, the best place i think it was the best place i went to while i was traveling wow so, no so the encounter did not disappoint it just lived up to oh, every no. expectation i was planning my next trip back as soon as i got off the island wow. <laughs> i gotta get these mates you know we gotta get some more cameras and, and you know like get some more sh- shots you know there's i got a shot of you know dragons in the sunset and you know it comes close up because so, again you can read the behavior this guy that's sitting there with a belly full of food digesting you know he didn't you know, we could get reasonably close to him. He was just relaxed. You can see he was relaxed. So we were able to get some, you know, closer shots. Whereas the dragon that we were near that was like, you know, swaying side to side, tongue flicking, hunting, looking for something, we stayed way, 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 way back from him. Yeah. You know, um, it's the knowledge of the guides, you know, they're, they're quite, you know, really fantastic out there. I love that place. I cannot, I hope, I hope I get to go back sooner or later because it's just one of a kind. It's, it's one of the new seven natural wonders of the world, oh. Komodo National. Is it, yeah. is it pretty expensive to go there? I was surprised at how cheap it was actually okay. to fly because it's quite close to Bali. So flying there is pretty easy. Oh, and again, oh, if you wait, stand- wait, 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 you fly to Bali? Yeah, yeah. Oh, and you fly to Bali across. So it's like another hour maybe further east from Bali. Really? Because we yeah. are planning on going to Bali. I had no idea. I mean, we we're just in the beginning stages. Really, it's mm. that close. You fly? To- oh. Yeah, super close. Oh my god. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> I'm you. planning our vacation. <laughs> and it's. You get you get what you pay for, I suppose, as well. You know, I did this initial tour, which was a big group tour. There was like 20 of us on a boat. We just kind of went on, saw the dragons really quickly, and then we went and snorkeled really quickly. And that was like, I was surprised at how cheap that was. And then my private one, which I did, which was for an even shorter amount of time, you know, it was it was a bit more expensive. I think I paid about 200 Australian for the boat um, just to get out there because I was the only one on this boat. Okay. But I was like, when am I coming back here? You know, yeah, yeah. like... One thing that um, I hope to be able to do more in the future, I've loved this solo traveling, but, you know, 
if you actually go with someone else, you know, that $100, $200 boat, if I go with one other person becomes $100 each and, you know, you can actually split those costs a little bit, which makes seeing, you know, wildlife and traveling in general a lot more, you know, financially viable, I guess. Yeah. But um, no, nah, not too expensive. But then you get what you pay for. You can stay on these amazing big luxury boats and still spend all this amazing time viewing the dragons and stuff like that. You know, you can, you can do it for a couple of hundred dollars, to be honest, and you can do it for a couple of thousand dollars. So it's really a matter of doing the research and contacting people, seeing what you want out of it and kind of making the decision from there. Wow, that's great. Okay, so we are literally 45 minutes in and I haven't even <laughs> I haven't even asked you why I was actually had you on the show, but I'm, I just had such a fun time talking to you. So can we talk about the Gibbon Conservation Society? <laughs> yes, I would absolutely love to. So I just, uh, I just, mate, we, we could be talking for hours about this sort of stuff. I've but yeah, the Gibbons, it. you know, the, the Gibbons was at the end of my travels. So... I while I was traveling, I did want to do some volunteer work over in Southeast Asia. I hadn't really decided on a particular place. And I wanted to volunteer somewhere that I could kind of use my skills that I've developed over the years and actually help benefit that place. You know, there's some amazing volunteer programs out there, but it doesn't matter if you've worked with animals for a day or for 10 years. It's it's kind of everyone's kind of doing the same tasks and stuff like that. Anyway, I heard about there are they were initially called the Gibbon Protection Society Malaysia. They only changed to the Gibbon Conservation Society this year. I heard about them and got in contact with the director. Uh, her name is Bam. Uh, her name's Ma- Mariani Rumley, but everyone calls her Bam. And she, I got in contact with her and literally just went to visit the center for like a day or two to see if it was something that I could support. So she took me out there, um, showed me a little bit about it. And then I had some other travel plans in between. I was like, yep, yeah, absolutely coming back. And then I ended up spending about three months there with them. Wow. And it was a very multi-purpose kind of experience because in my time there you know I was able to assist them with the care and the husbandry of these rehabilitated gibbons um we started to set up a volunteer program and just kind of kind of build the thing up but um I'll tell you a bit more about it so BAM started at uh GPSM which is the original name was started in 2016 okay and uh I'm actually wearing my gibbon shirt yes you are so yeah and uh, this Gibbon's actually the face of the first one that Bam ever rescued. Um, unfortunately, he did pass away. But since then, you know, she was absolutely hooked on this species. And she has just put so much time and effort into learning as much as she can about them. You know, we've all heard of like Jane Goodall and Diane Fossey for the gorillas and stuff. Bam is the Gibbon equivalent. And Jacob, I'm sorry to interrupt, but can, for some people yeah. who don't know what a Gibbon is, because they're not oh, as, they're, yeah, yeah, I guess yeah. I'm realizing some people might be like, what? Is, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Of course, yeah. Um, a Gibbon is an ape. A lot of people do think they are monkeys because they are significantly smaller in size uh, compared to, you know, orangutans, gorillas, and chimps. There's actually 20 species of Gibbon, and they 20? are exclusive. Yeah, 20 species. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know there were 20 species. Okay. Yeah, 20. And they're, they're exclusively arboreal, so uh, they they if you see a gibbon on the ground, normally that's not a good sign. Uh, they spend basically all their time in the trees, and they are one of the most endangered families of primates. So uh, I was just looking at this before. There is there's one vulnerable species. There's five uh, sorry one vulnerable species, fourteen endangered species, and five critically endangered species. So they're all threatened. The species at the Gibbon Conservation Society at the moment is made up of white-handed or la gibbons, and they're endangered. And there are a couple of other species you can find in Malaysia as well. There's the uh, agile gibbon and the siamang gibbon or siamang gibbon, mm-hmm. and they're, they're both threatened as well. And in Borneo, if you go over to Malaysian Borneo, 
there's three more species over there also endangered. Yeah, so they are quite unique, very different from a lot of the other great apes. They are uh, monogamous. They form very strong social bonds, um, probably the strongest in the primate kingdom. And once they are partnered, you know, they'll have a couple of a couple of babies. And once those uh, the the infant reaches age, you know, it'll spread out and find mm-hmm. its own partner. And they're also the only primates to truly sing. There is n- no better sound on earth than a given singing. That was what I got to wake up to every single morning. Right? It's incredible. Yeah, man. I've got, I've got, I don't know how well it'll come across here, but I, I, I found a recording from when I was out in the jungle once. Once When I was in Sumatra as well. So you've got orangutans and leaf monkeys and all that sort of stuff. The gibbons are super hard to see there. But I remember we were just walking. On this side of the river, there was white-handed gibbons singing. This side of the river, there was Siamang gibbons singing. And it was just oh, absolutely incredible noise. And, you know, that's how they establish their pair bond. It's how they uh, mark their territory. You normally hear it earlier in the evening and then in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, just to be able to hear that every morning whilst working uh, with the guys at the uh, Gibbon Conservation Society was just incredible. I, was, I don't know how well it'll, it'll come across, but I'll see if it oh, – no, maybe not. It sounds good. It sounds- Can you hear that? So that's, that's a white-handed Gibbon song, a part of it anyway. Wow. Um, but – you know, it's it's just an, an amazing, amazing sound. And, yeah, and because they are, they're so appealing. The, the big thing that the Gibbon Conservation Society is trying to, to do is support gibbons in their natural habitat, but also the, the biggest project, the, the biggest side project of this is called the Gibbon Rehabilitation Project. And that is so that they can rehabilitate gibbons, most of which were part of the illegal pet trade, and release them back into the wild, which has been done successfully. It's been done in India. It's been done in Indonesia, Thailand, uh, several places. And in Malaysia, it's quite a new thing. Um, You know, BAM is basically revolutionizing this thing. And uh, there are currently 12 gibbons there at the moment. They vary in age from a couple of months old all the way up to, uh, you know, several years old. And they're all victims of the illegal wildlife trade. People want to keep these things as pets when they're babies and they're cute, and then they get older. They uh, their canines grow. They might get bitey. They they get noisy. You know, there's a, there's a place now with the Gibbon Rehabilitation Project where we can actually take some of these animals and 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 try and rehabilitate them and release them to the wild, which can take an incredibly long time, five years plus. You know, and it depends on the individuals as well. But yeah, that that Bams started that, and she's got a small but incredible team that are supporting that at the moment they've been hit pretty hard like a lot of um you know conservation and rehabilitation organizations throughout the world with with um COVID-19 um but you know we've been really trying to push um with social media and doing some fundraising and and they're actually starting to get there you know they're doing such incredible work and there's there's hopes to maybe move to a new site soon where they can have a bigger area so there's more space for the gibbons to um you know, build up their skills and all that, and that sort of thing so that uh, basically there's a whole bunch of criteria that a gibbon needs to meet before it can be released. So, you know, they need to be able to sing at the right time of the day. They need to spend 90% or more of their time in the top part of their enclosure. You know, if we see them coming to the ground, that's not good. You want them to stay up high because that's what gibbons are supposed to do. And then they are normally released as a pair as well. Okay. That pair bond is so important. If you release a gibbon on its own, it may struggle a lot more. But once they've got that pair bond or they've even got an offspring and you release them as a trio, you know, that has been proven to be somewhat more successful. So, 
it's very early stages at the moment, but they're doing some fantastic work. And yeah, I, I was stoked to be a part of it. I was able to go over and assist them with, you know, some husbandry stuff and just kind of think of ways, you know, build build a project, um, start a sustainable volunteering program, get some people over to assist because it is such a small team, you know, and, yeah. and that'll also help develop a bit of funds. And hopefully, you know, in several years' time, some of these gibbons will be back out in the wild. <laughs> That's the end of the game anyway. That's awesome. And are they, I mean, could I actively go visit BAM and all these gibbons? Is it open to the public? It's not. Um, so the only way to go there is to be a part of the volunteer program, which currently, of course, isn't running. We can't take on international volunteers at the moment. But yeah, that that's something we're building up. We did have a couple of volunteers lined up to come and support us, but obviously that all fell through with COVID. But yeah, you can be a part of that. And yeah, it's it's, it's a once in a lifetime thing. You know, I, I'm a big supporter of, of, you know, sustainable volunteering and these guys are doing it right. You know, it's early days, but they're, they're doing such a fantastic job. And yeah, so um, you can follow them on Facebook and Instagram on Gibbon Conservation Society. And yeah, reach out to them there if you have, have any questions about Gibbons. Once things open up, you know, definitely keen to take on volunteers and, and support this project because, you know, you only need a couple of people to maybe feed and clean the Gibbons every day. But while I was there, we were building, you know, new enclosures and, um, and you know, doing all these extra jobs. They've got like a little gardening project now so they can try and sustainably grow yeah. more food on site to feed the Gibbons rather than, have, rather than having to go into the markets and stuff like that too. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I if we still got enough time, I want to tell you a particular story about oh, one given. Oh, yes, go ahead. Yeah, man. yeah, he's got time. Awesome. Um, so when I went back there, there was I, I met up with Bam. There was a fundraising and awareness event. It was actually at a domestic animal shelter, and um, Given Conservation Society had a little stand there. And that was the day that I was going to travel back to the rehabilitation project with Bam and stay there for a couple of months. Mm-hmm. And that day, she's like, we've, we've got to go pick up a gibbon. It's like, really? Like, I wasn't expecting, you know, I knew the gibbons that were on site. It's was like, we're, we're going to pick up this guy now. His name's Dexter. And he was actually located in Kuala Lumpur. And um, we went out there and I had my cameras. So I was actually able to film the process of, of the team going in and, and removing him from this pet situation, a legal pet situation, and get him out and take him to his brand new enclosure. And it was really powerful because he he couldn't even stretch his arms all the way oh. in his in his cage that he was in. And, you know, there was cats in a cage next to him. I think they let him out occasionally, maybe, but again, you know, he was in the middle of suburbia. And he was a couple of years old. He was very malnourished. He had this weird rash on him and he, he wasn't in, you know, um, the best health. And, and Bam said, yeah, we can take him on. The team frantically built a new enclosure very, very quickly and were able to pop him in there. And even like the, the, the method of uh, locomotion that Gibbons use to move around the tree is called brachiation. So they just how they swing from tree to tree like Tarzan, you know. And we popped him in this enclosure and he was on the on the the floor of the enclosure, they're kind of like elevated somewhat off, off the off the ground. He was on the floor and he's just kind of like, like how do I do this, you know? And his first swings on his arms were just so tentative and he's like, he didn't know how to be a gibbon. Mm-hmm. And then the next day and the next day and the next day, and like by like a week, he was like, like swinging around like like crazy. He just got his confidence so, so quickly. And, you know, he's put on weight now. He's, um, his fur conditions so much better and he's, he's singing. He's singing to a particular girl given every day which is uh, <laughs> good, really cool good for dexter he's a, yeah he's got a beautiful song and you know 
even in that three months, seeing how much he progressed is amazing. And, you know, Dexter may not be able to be uh, rehabilitated and released fully for several years, but the situation he was in before to the situation that he's in now is just incredible. So it's unfortunate that um, the Gibbons, people do want to keep them as pets in Malaysia and in other places in Asia as well um, because, you know, they're just not, they're not designed for that. And so often if once they get older, they just get dumped out in the jungle, a hard release. They don't know how to look after themselves and they'll just die. Um, there's even cases of where they'll contact the owner and just swap it out for another, the, 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 the seller mm-hmm. of this illegal pet and just swap it out for another baby given. You know, it's, it's a horrible trade, but, you know, seeing the progress of these little guys after coming into the rehabilitation center and, and giving them better nutrition, areas to swing and, and brachiate, you know, we do enrichment that encourages, you know, natural foraging behaviors and, and things like that as well. And oh, it's, it's absolutely awesome. They're doing some really good work. Wow. You know, thank you for all you do. Thank you for raising awareness and honestly for the for the content that you're putting out there and just for coming on the show because i know that someone's listening and you're just inspiring people to take action so i just applaud you for doing that and you're (laughs) dude seriously though and your videos are amazing i mean just seriously on youtube like your videography is really really good it's really on point thanks man i I really really appreciate that and like i'm just one guy you know there's so many people out there like, like, you know, yourself and all these other people we know that are trying to make a better world for wildlife. And I just want to drum home again, this team in Malaysia, they are doing it super, super tough. And they are just the most determined and passionate people ever met. Like Bam and her team, it is absolutely incredible. They've given up so much just to give these Gibbons a second chance, which is amazing. And, and, and personally, you know, to be able to actually go out there with them and photograph and film and, you know, just photograph and film wildlife from all over the world, that is such a good way to to get it into people's people's hearts and, you know, inspire other people to do this sort of thing, you know. Um, I really appreciate appreciate your kind words, but there's definitely people doing more than me out there, you know, and um, we've got to support that, you know. It's it's not just about the animals. It's about the people that are out there 100. supporting them and dedicating their lives to them, you know. Unfortunately, we're in a position in the world now, you know, we are the cause of, of the demise of so many of these animals, but we are also, unfortunately, the cure for a lot of them too, you know, mm-hmm. we are going to be the reason that some of these animals survive, you know, in, into the future, hopefully with, with the Gibbons as well. Like Bam um, told me this quote, which I think is absolutely incredible. It's a bit more, not a quote so much as a little story. And tells me this story of a man walking down a beach and he sees this kid and he's throwing um, starfish into the water. There's starfish all over the beach and he's throwing them into the water. And this man goes up to this little kid. He's like, Oh, you know, what are you doing? He's like, Oh, I've got to throw them back into the water or they'll die. Well, there's hundreds and thousands of, of starfish on this beach. You know, you can't you can't save all of them. And the kid throws one more back into the water, and he goes, "Well, I saved that one. I made a difference for that one." You know, the individual, each gibbon that we can create a better life for, that has made a world difference. To the individual it may not have made a difference to the entire population yet. That's a bigger picture. But you know, seeing Dexter from where he was to where he is now, man, that is just the best. You know. Is, is so good. Dude, I'm going to shed a tear. <laughs> I feel like I'm like sitting there just imagining this kid and the starfish and oh my God. The powerful little story. Yeah, it's, it's so powerful. Bam, dude, you're hitting me. <laughs> Over here like, oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
Oh man. Okay. So Jacob, I'm going to include the links to all of your social channels. And then if a listener wants to contact you, can they do that directly to get more information on how they can help the Gibbon Conservation Society? Yeah, absolutely. So if you want to contact the Gibbon Conservation Society, then um, just shoot them a message on Instagram or on, on Facebook is the best way to get in touch with them there. They've got um, plenty of people um, you know, working to answer those as quickly as we can. Um, and yeah, that on Instagram, Facebook, they're just given conservation society. And then for me, yeah. Um, if you have any questions, just hit me a DM on, uh, shoot me a DM, I should say on Instagram. So awesome. And- yeah. Always happy, always happy to have a chat, anything wildlife, you know, if it, if it encourages people to do a little bit more then I'm always down for a chat. Oh yeah. And I love your feed. Once again, what is your handle? JJ Emerson underscore wildlife. Awesome. Thank you so much. Will you come back on the show again in like a year so we can see what else you've done around the world? I mean, hopefully, 100%, man. I mean, hopefully we might yeah. still be at home in a year. But... Yeah. Yeah. We'll have to wait and see, but yeah, this is, this is so much fun, man. Like as soon as I, I started, I heard your podcast and saw what you were doing with your, um, your live show. And I was like, nah, I've got to be a part of this. It's such, it's no, it's such a fantastic medium to spread this sort of yeah. stuff. Cause there's not really anyone else there doing it like you, man. Like it's, it. it's, it's a start. It's a start of something big. I honestly think that and, and such a good opportunity. And even if it's, you know, whether it's 10 people, 100 people, 1,000 people listening to it, you know, it's going to make a difference to those individuals. They're going to learn something and hopefully feel something as well. So I appreciate it. And the, keep it up. <laughs> yeah. And the fact that you listen and people from around the world listen to the show, we have a big listener base in Australia and it just like, Ah, it just it's like what you don't even think because I'm here in Idaho just recording this you know show in my living room and it's people are watching around the world India I mean it's just like it's just crazy yeah 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 it's just raising awareness you know doing what you're doing so I appreciate you tuning in man <laughs> thanks Ace man I really really appreciate it as well it's been awesome awesome all right I'll chat to you soon thanks for listening to the Animals to the Max podcast if you enjoyed this episode please share it with friends and family. Also, if you haven't already, hit the subscribe button. It really helps me out. As always, if you have any guest suggestions, if you want to email me personally, head on over to CorbinMaxi.com. And if you haven't already, check out our social channels. You can follow me at Corbin Maxi on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll talk to you next time.